Good morning. So before I jump into our text, let me just say a couple of things. There's a cliche, I don't think it's in the Bible, maybe it is, but the Lord works in mysterious ways. And sometimes I think that's just a nice way of saying the Lord does crazy things. <laughs> so I was involved in a church in Warrington, Oregon for about 10 years, and the Lord took us from that church. And I was involved in this church for about 10 years, and the Lord took us from this church. So let me get something straight. I didn't leave angry. I left heartbroken. Because I love you guys, and I miss you. And let me get something else straight. I try to spend time with the Lord in prayer every morning, or at least some point during the day. And I have things that I give God thanks for. And one of the things I give God thanks for are men in my life who have made an impact. Some of them you won't know, like Russell Waterberg, Ed Bussert, Richard Keeney. Some of them you do know, like uh, Chuck Swindoll and Harry Ironside and Jay Vernon McGee. But along with those men, there's one I mentioned and give thanks for. And that's for Chris. Chris and I are one in doctrine. We are one in the gospel. We talk. We communicate all the time. I didn't leave upset with Chris or with anybody in this church. Don't blame me for leaving. No, it's just, you know what it is, just it is what it is. But I love this body. I love Chris. He has been a mentor. He still continues to be a mentor. We, we talk, we have coffee, we have lunch. So please, God moves us, okay? All right, I just wanted to say that. And support him and pray for him. It's a battle. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Does anybody have the, the note card in the, in the uh, bulletin for the notes? What is meant, my title is Don't Drift, but above it is something, if we've moved beyond this, what does that mean? What, is, what does that come from? That statement. I was just curious. I was like, well, what, what does that mean? Anyways, it's not for me. So anyways, Hebrews chapter 2. Would you please stand? We're just going to read the first three verses. And um, then we'll go to Lord in prayer. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege uh, of being able to stand up here uh, as your representative. I don't take it lightly, God. And I ask for your spirit to take total control that I would walk with him and cooperate with him as he teaches through me this morning. 
that you would open up everyone's hearts and ears and mind to the truth, God, that you have for them, that you would bless this time, and that you would continue to bless this body as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. In Philemon, verses 23 and 24, we read this. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. In Colossians 4.14, we read this. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. That was written around 60 to 62 A.D., while Paul, while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, as were the verses in Philemon. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. This was written around AD 64, so about two years after Philemon and Colossians. Paul was again a prisoner in Rome. This time he wasn't in a house, he was in a dungeon pretty unpleasant place to be. Uh, this time he's not going to be released. When he wrote this, he was literally weeks away from being executed by Nero. His life and ministry were coming to a close. Uh, what we read here about Demas uh, forsaking Paul because he loves the world is such a tragic epitaph for Demas. And for as long as the Bible is read, the banner over Demas will be, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7. This is Paul's testimony about himself. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. What a contrast to Demas those words are. Paul's facing the end of his life in a Roman dungeon, and he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, the course that God has set before me, and I have kept the faith. And for as long as the Bible is read, that is the banner that will be over the Apostle Paul. And this is a shout of victory. He didn't do it in his own strength. He did it in the strength of the power of the Holy Spirit, which we know, but it's still a shout of victory. Paul's epitaph is as brilliant and glorious as Demas' is dull and sad. Why did Paul finish well and Demas finish so miserably? Some would suggest that I, and I've read this, that Demas was simply not a real Christian. There's no reason to think that. That would suggest that truly born-again believers can never fail in their walk with Christ, and we know that's not the case. Christians can and do fall away from following Christ. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. 
the good news is, is our salvation is not dependent upon our faithfulness. Our salvation is dependent on the one who is faithful. And I expect to see Demas in heaven one day. Demas failed, it says there, because he loved the present world. He loved the present world, to be honest, more than Christ. But I don't think Demas started out that way. You don't identify with somebody in jail, even a house jail, if your faith isn't somewhat real and powerful. Demas, I think, started out well. He ended poorly. I guarantee you that the failure Demas suffered came upon him gradually. Gradually, it creeped upon him. He allowed himself to drift. To drift. And the results were sad. They were sad for Paul, who had to endure someone who had been with him, someone who he mentions with Luke and Mark as being with him in the ministry, and now this guy who is a friend of Paul has departed Sad for Demas. The results are hard to read. I don't know about you, but it's hard to read about somebody that Paul's commending in Philemon and Colossians and then read, Demas has forsaken me. And the results of Demas doing this will affect Demas throughout eternity. Going back to our text in Hebrews, We read in verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Notice how the writer of Hebrews includes himself. Lest we drift away. Hebrews is a tremendous book. It's a tremendous book to read and it's a tremendous book to study. It's also a tremendously misunderstood book, unfortunately. The purpose of the book of Hebrews can be summed up very simply in this way. There are eternal rewards that God wants believers to earn in this life. And we will only realize those eternal rewards to the extent that we are faithful to Christ in this life. To earn those eternal rewards, we must be faithful to Jesus Christ to the end. Hebrews was written to believers, not unbelievers, to believers. It was written to believers as a warning, not that they're going to lose their salvation, not that they're going to lose being born again. It was written to believers to warn and to encourage them to live out their entire lives faithfully to Jesus Christ. God wants to richly reward you and I at the judgment seat of Christ. I've said this before from this stage. It is one of the great untaught truths in the church that there are rewards that God wants us to earn. There are things he has for us to do and rewards to be earned by doing them. He wants to richly reward you and I at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's only possible to the extent that we live our lives in obedience to Christ. Our faithfulness to Christ, your, your faithfulness, my faithfulness to Christ will determine our level of rewards in eternity. The believer's rewards are at issue in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Not our salvation from hell. In other words, Hebrews is written to eternally secure believers to warn them of becoming like, well, demons. Don't become like demons. We're not going to go into the positive, but there's a negative and a positive in Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews sets forth to give this out to the readers. Hey, you got to be careful. He has this negative appeal, first of all, and it's written 
in five warning passages. And as I said, the book of Hebrews is one of the biggest misunderstood books in the church. Because so many people look at these warning passages and they think, oh, that's losing my salvation. I'm going to lose eternal life. You can't lose eternal life. It's either eternal or it's not. Your eternal life wasn't dependent upon you to get it. Your eternal life isn't dependent upon you to even keep it. It's a gift. The first of these warning passages that we're, that we're going to look at today, actually, is the danger of drifting away, drifting, not leaving, drifting away from truth. And that's found in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. The second warning is the danger of disbelief, and that's Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. The third warning is the warning of the danger of not going on to maturity in our Christian faith. That's Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12. The fourth warning is the warning and of the danger of willful sinning as a Christian, of living your life in rebellion. That's Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. And finally, the fifth warning is the danger of being unresponsive to God. Hebrews 12, 14 through 29. I believe strongly in the free grace gospel. And sometimes we can be accused, those of us who believe in that, of being against the law. And we can be accused of saying, well, you're telling people they can live any way they want to live. When it comes to being born again, that is true. But make no mistake about it. There are consequences, both physically, in time, and in eternity, for a Christian who does not live in obedience. These warning passages given in Hebrews, not one of them is a warning to a believer that he or she can lose the gift of eternal life. They are warnings to say, look, there are consequences, serious consequences. If you don't go on to maturity, there are serious consequences as a believer. If you choose to live in rebellion, there are serious consequences. If you drift. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The danger of drifting away. Let's look at our, our text again. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? In my translation, or my version of the Bible, I should say, it's, it's, this is the New King James, it starts out with the word therefore, and there's that old cliche, when you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask, why is it there for? Yours might read, for this reason. The thought is actually the same. It's referring back to what the writer in Hebrews um, talked about in the first chapter of Hebrews. Uh, he spent the first chapter talking about that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was much better, much better than the angels. And so he makes the case that since Christ is better than the angels, we had better take seriously the revelation that he gives us, specifically the gospel. The reason he starts out by this is because the Mosaic law, the first covenant, was mediated, given by angels. So the Israelites 
the Jews took a big thing about angels. And the writer of Hebrews' point is going to be that if there was severe punishment, discipline in this life for the breaking of the first covenant, and that was just given by angels, how much more will be the punishment for those of us who don't obey as believers in this life to an, a covenant given us to us by the Son of God? So the readers are told to pay close attention to what they have been taught about Christ from teachers, from the scriptures. And it's important that you and I understand that this is a warning that we need to heed, that we need to pay attention to. It is extremely dangerous for you to sit in church Sunday after Sunday or in Bible study day, week after week and hear God's word presented to you and have the Holy Spirit tug at your heart and to ignore that. It's a dangerous thing that you put yourself in. Not that you're going to go to hell, but you're going to force God to deal with you. It's much better if you yield and bend your knees now than if God makes you bend your knees. I've done both. I've had times where I tried to stand up to God and do my own thing, and God had to put me on my knees, and it hurt. And I've had times where I said, I know, I'm going to yield. It's a dangerous thing to not respond to the Holy Spirit. If he's convicting you or telling you to do something, it's a, it'll be a dangerous thing for you if while you hear this message, God speaks to you and says, you know, you're drifting. Or you've drifted and ignore it. I don't know what God will do. But I'm telling you, he is God Almighty. He's not your buddy in the sky. He's a holy God. We just sang about that. He's your loving father. But a loving father disciplines his child. Refuse, refusing to yield to the Lord puts the believer in danger of drifting away. Of just drifting away. The idea here is like you're in a boat and you're secured to a dock. And the currents are going by, but you're secure to the dock. The dock representing biblical truth. If the readers of Hebrews, or us, neglect the truth, we're in danger of just drifting. You might drift just a little bit from the dock and think, well, I'm okay. I can still see the dock. I could actually reach out and grab the dock and pull the boat back. But then when we wake up farther from the dock, and farther, and farther. The thing about sin is this, and I, I speak from personal experience. You can say, I'm going to go this far into a sinful lifestyle and no further. It never works. Pretty soon, one day you wake up, you don't even know who you are anymore. You're thinking thoughts that you... You're thinking thoughts you would have never thought before. You're imagining things that you would have never imagined before because that's the progression of sin, even in a believer. You find yourself just going along with the tides of the world, drifting away from the truth. Just drifting. And one day you wake up and you've drifted and you're out in the current. And boy, you're going to have a choice to make. 
you want to turn to Proverbs 3.21, keep your finger in Hebrews, but Proverbs 3.21, there's a verse there. Solomon writes in verse 21 of chapter 3, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. He's talking about sound wisdom and discretion. He goes, don't let them depart from your eyes. The reason I went to that verse is because the idea in this verse is the same one as in Hebrews. In other words, the writer of Solomon's writing and says, don't gradually lose sight of God's wisdom. The warning is, you're not going to just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm just going to rebel against God. I'm just going to... No, he says the danger is you just gradually lose sight of God's wisdom as you drift. And the reader is encouraged in Proverbs to keep wisdom and discretion in sight. We don't tend... And and this is... I'm not talking about a Christian who is in complete rebellion here. I'm talking about a Christian who is gradually drifting. If you continue to drift, I I promise you, you will end up in rebellion. But we're at the drifting point. You and I, we don't tend to just depart from truth. We just lose sight of it. We drift from it. A gentleman by the name of William Newell said this, quote, the world is ever tugging at the believer. And that's so often unconsciously to him to go along with its false hopes. Satan likes nothing better, listen to this, Satan likes nothing better than than a neglecting Christian. We all know, too, that the tendency of our natures is to drift along with earthly things away from the gospel, end quote. What this guy is saying is, many times we're not even aware of the tugging of the world. And we wake up one day and we realize that we're not where we want to be. And we're not where God wants us to be. And the whole tenor of this earth, of this worldly system, is anti-Christ. It's anti-gospel. Satan can't take your salvation from you. But he can make you incredibly ineffective for God's kingdom. And he can rob you of your joy and your peace. We don't tell this to new converts, but the secret is, when you put your faith in Christ, God's Spirit comes to live inside of you. And when you're a born-again Christian, and you choose to start living in sin, you're never, ever going to have peace. You're just never going to have it. You're never going to settle in it. You're going to... You may get pretty settled, but there will always be moments of time where God's Spirit says, really? And and if you do, and this is true as well, if you try to maintain this rebellion and go to church, which I've done, he really gets to you. He says, oh, you're singing Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. (laughs) How great is our God? Why don't you live like it, Flint? That's what he does. You, you try to worship, you, you know it's pointless. You stop praying. You stop going to Bible studies. You definitely don't want to be alone with the Lord. Because when you're in rebellion, he has one message for you. T- 
two. I love you, repent. I love you, repent. We, tend to, we have a tendency to drift, to drift from the gospel, to drift from the truth. Look at verse 1 again of Hebrews 2. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This is a specific warning against departing or drifting from truth. We must diligently remain in the truth. To do that, though, you and I have to know the truth and remember it. To know the truth, you must get into this word. You must get into the Bible. You must put yourself under sound teachers. You must spend time in this book. you got to know the truth to drift from it, first of all. Part of the problem that we have in America, specifically in America, I think, because we have so much, is we don't know the Bible anymore. We're become, we have become biblically illiterate. I'm going to write a book about that and make millions, I think. Biblically illiterate. We don't know God's word. So we fall for everything. We fall for the kid who said he went to heaven. When the apostle Paul said he couldn't even speak about what he saw there. Hope it didn't step on your toes, but get a grip. This, listen to me. This is the revelation God has given us. All of it. No more coming. This is the revelation. He's revealed everything that you and I need to know in this book, this Bible. You have to know the truth. You have to get the truth in you. And if you don't do these things, if you don't focus on truth, you will drift away from truth and you will drift away from Christ. Drifting from truth is perhaps the greatest thing, the greatest hindrance, the most common problem, let's put it that way, that the church has experienced over its 2,000-year history. Drifting from biblical truth. How quickly did the church drift from the truth of the gospel after the apostles died? Within a century, within a hundred years, now, there were always people, there's always a remnant. God has people who are putting their faith in Christ, they're, they're, they're trusting in Christ alone. But the enemy is so subtle, and if he can get you off the truth of the gospel just a little bit, that's all he has to do. We've drift from the truth. It's not intentional, at least at times. We just tend to drift. We simply neglect the anchor of our soul, which is Christ. We just drift. We just drift. C.S. Lewis said this, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? They just drift. They just, things become more important. Sports or houses, or vacations, or money, or comfort. That's my big one. I don't want to suffer. I like my recliner. I like a full belly, obviously. I like it. We just drift. 
divided loyalties, they come into play. Where our hearts are, that's where we're going to be drawn to. Demas loved the world. I don't know how it happened for Demas. I would imagine, like the rest of us, he's there, Paul's in jail, Demas isn't in jail, but he's trying to stay around Paul. He's going to the markets in Rome. Maybe he goes one day to the Colosseum and he catches a show. I don't know. But he just drifted. He just drifted and drifted and drifted. Until one day, Paul says, where's Demas? Luke, where's Demas at? Well, I've been trying not to tell you, but Demas has checked out. He went to Thessalonica. When's he coming back? He's not. He's done with, he's done with his Christianity. He, doesn't, he says it's just too hard. Verse 2 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, the Mosaic law or the Old Covenant, like I said, had come through or was mediated through angels. It tells us that in Acts and in Galatians. And remember that chapter 1, the whole point of chapter 1 of Hebrews is to establish that Christ is better, superior to the angels. And under the Old Covenant, this verse is saying, there was punishment for disobedience to the, to the laws. There was, there, was, there, was, there was punishment for transgression. And that Old Covenant had come through angels, the writer is saying. The New Covenant is superior to the old for many reasons, but one of the reasons this writer is saying is it didn't come through angels, it came through Jesus Christ. It came through the Son of God. So in verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Since the new covenant is superior, the writer is saying, we can be sure that neglecting it will lead to serious consequences. Neglect means to be careless. That's what it means, just to be careless, to stop being concerned about something. Uh, there is a warning of neglecting, ne just neglecting it, not rejecting your salvation, neglecting it. It's a warning of drifting. And, and this is not just for young people. The warning is for well, young people like me and old people like you guys. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a warning for all of us. Whether you've been saved two years or 20 years or 50 years, I'm telling you, you can drift. It, this warning is for you. It is a warning for being like Demas. Don't be like Demas. Don't drift. I understand, I, I, I understand the pull of the world. I understand it. I just got done reading a book, uh, He That Is Spiritual. And I was telling somebody about it this Thursday. That book has awakened me to the, to the absolute necessity of relying upon the Holy Spirit for the power to live out this life. So I can make rules, and I can say, well, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to go here, I'm not going to go there. And maybe that's necessary sometimes. But ultimately, what the writer, uh, Louis Bray Schaefer, is saying is, you claim by faith 
the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he said he will do. And I'm telling you, I've started to do this, and it has made a difference. It has really made a difference. Like, okay, no, I don't have to go there. But I have to do my part too, though. You, I, can't just, I can't just neglect God's word. I can't just neglect coming together with other believers. I can't just fill my mind with trash and garbage. Because what does that do? It grieves the Holy Spirit, and it quenches the Holy Spirit. So when we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we have unconfessed sin, we quench the Holy Spirit when we, don't resist, when we resist Him, we don't walk with Him, therefore we fulfill the desires of the flesh. Like this guy said, we have, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're, and I've known this, you've you got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get when you were born again. But you hinder him when you don't yield, when you grieve him, quench him, don't walk with him. So if we're not going to drift, you've got to be in the word. You've got to be in prayer. You can't do it, by the, you can't do it physically at all. You can't even please God in the flesh. You can't. You have to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm not going to drift, I do have to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to spend time with you in the word. I'm going to spend time with you in prayer. I am going to try and not to uh, look at things I shouldn't look at and listen to things I shouldn't listen to. But I'm, guess what? I'm, I can't, Lord, on my own, I'll blow it. So I'm going to trust that the power of the Holy Spirit will, will just do it. But you've got to want it. You have to want it. There's an example from the New Testament of Demas, but there's a great example of a man who drifted, and boy, did he drift. And we're going to look at that real quickly. Turn to 1 Kings. Find Psalms and keep going to the left. 1 Kings chapter 3. And look at, let's look at verse, starting in verse 5. 1 Kings chapter 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out and come in. It's always a good thing to acknowledge that you need him, which is what Solomon's doing. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. So Solomon takes over from his dad, David dies, he becomes king. God appears to him in a dream, says, what do you want, Solomon? And Solomon said, you know what? I don't have, I'm not very bright, and I know I need your strength. I know I need your wisdom. Give me wisdom to judge this country correctly. This pleased God, and Solomon was given great wisdom, the wisest man who ever lived. He was given so much wisdom that the nation of Israel would actually, in a respectful way, fear him. It was like, this guy is smart. And Solomon was given the honor 
of building the temple. David wanted to build the temple. He got all the materials, remember? But God said, no, I'm going to have someone else build it. Go, go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 22. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. This is, he's dedicating the temple now. In the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all your hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And this is so powerful. This just shows you Solomon's understanding of God. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Can you put God in a little box? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant is praying before you today. This is, again, part of a prayer that King Solomon is offering at the dedication of the temple. Notice those phrases. You know, he says things, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. Behold, he said, you, are, you, are, you cannot, a temple can't hold you. The heaven of heavens can't hold you. This is a man who has a relationship with God. Okay, this is a man at the zenith of his relationship with God. Look at verse 60 of the same chapter. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Have you ever... Th I, I'm going to just digress for one second. We, there is only one God and we serve him. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not Allah. He is not Buddha. He is not Confucius. He is not some force. One God, Yahweh. One God, only one God. I think it's important to acknowledge that. There is no other. Verse 61. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. So the, king of, so the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. He said, God, there's no God like you. He is having a worship service. There's no God like you. And he tells the people, let your heart be loyal to the Lord our God. He offers 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. And I just can't think of the, I just think of the mess. But he's doing this as a devotion to God. This is a man dedicated to the Lord his God. But we're going to see there is a big but coming in the words. Look at chapter 11 of, second, of 1 Kings. Here it is. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, 
women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts from after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. King Solomon says he loved many foreign women. He says that he clung to them in love. This man had 300 wives and 700 concubines. He was out of control, to be honest with you. <laughs> he pro- Listen to me. He probably started out small. I, now, I don't mean it to be funny. I mean, he probably said, I'm going to marry the daughter of Pharaoh. It's a smart political move. And I'm going to marry this daughter of this king. So I'm going to, you know, my dad, he has six or seven wives and I don't know how many concubines. So I'm going to keep it small, keep the number down. Just a few wives and a few concubines. And he thought he could handle it. And he just drifted. After all, he knew he was the wisest man in the world. And he drifted. He still loved God. I get so, people say, oh, I love God. But 1 John makes it pretty clear. You don't love God if you're doing certain things or not doing certain things. He still loved God. He'd go to the temple and do what he had to do. But he drifted, and he neglected. One day he says, okay, okay, you know, I'm I'm going to, yes, Jerusalem is where God said I'm going to put my home, and I built this wonderful temple, and I dedicated to the Lord, but, but my wives, they miss their temples. So I'm going to, I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. I know the real God. So I'm just going to build temples for the gods of my wives. No big deal. And he drifted. He knew who the one true God was. He just wanted the women in his life to be happy for crying out loud, and he drifted. One day his wife says, Honey, I'm tired of going to worship Moloch. Moloch, he was wor- that's one of the gods. You guys know about Moloch? What they did to Moloch for Moloch? I'm tired of going to Moloch by myself. Honey, would you please come with me? Solomon said, okay, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'm just going to go, just going to make my wife happy. And he drifted. Look at verse 4. For it was so when Solomon was old, after a lifetime of seeing, this is, this is so us. Don't, don't, don't blame Solomon. Don't, don't well, blame him, but don't, don't judge him in, in a way and say, I would never do that. He has a lifetime of God's faithfulness. He's an old man. And it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. And Solomon went after Ashtaroth. He went after them. 
the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. The, I love how the, the writer of this book says, the abomination of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. The day had come when Solomon had drifted so far from the Lord that he was not just going along to make them happy, that he was, in, he was going after the gods. He was, now he's part of it. Solomon died in that state. Now I have, Solomon is in heaven. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that he had put his faith in the coming Messiah. But don't you think, don't think he got away with his sin. The nation of Israel would be divided. That was, an, that was a time, he, and God in his graciousness said, I won't take it from you while you're alive, Solomon, for the sake of David, not for you, not for you Solomon, for David, I won't take it from you. But when he was gone, they had a great division. Ten tribes went north, and they formed Israel. Benjamin and Judah in the south, they formed Judah. And I also, Solomon lost whatever eternal rewards would have been his if he had been faithful. William Barclay said this, For most of us, the threat of life is not so much that we should plunge into disaster. In other words, he says, it isn't really the problem that we face, especially in America, isn't it we're going to come to disaster, but that we should drift into sin. There are few people who deliberately, and in a moment, turn their backs on God. There are many who day by day drift farther and farther away from him. End quote. Solomon didn't just openly rebel one day. He drifted. I have been, listen to me, I have drifted. Every single time that I've drifted, I swear to you, I think, I thought in my mind, I can handle this. I'll only go so far into this. I'll only allow myself this far. Well, maybe this far. This far. This far. Now, I will tell you that God has been incredibly gracious to me, and he has only ever allowed me to go so far before he has spanked me or done something that made me wake up from the stupor I was headed to and bring me back to himself. But if I had continued and continued and continued, I can assure you that even as a Christian, my, my testimony would be ruined. My walk before the world would be ruined. Yes, God would forgive me, but there are some things, this is the point of Hebrews 6, there are some things you don't come back from. There are some sins that as a Christian we commit, not that you go to hell, but that you lose your, you lose your effectiveness and you lose the eternal rewards that would have been yours. And as Esau cried, God, please. I want, the, I want the blessing, and there was no blessing for Esau. That is a good warning to us. There comes a point in time where God says, I have forgiven you, but there are consequences, and you're going to sit in those consequences. 
And you're going to lose whatever eternal rewards. And, and, and the, the drifting of Solomon and the drifting of Demas, that is the danger. It's, it's if you drift, if you neglect the salvation we have been given as a gift, if you neglect it. Going back to Hebrews, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? How shall we escape, the writer is saying, if we drift? How shall we escape the chastisement, the loss of reward, if we neglect so great a salvation? God did not save you just to tip, to, so you can say, well, I punched my ticket, I'm not going to go to hell, and now I'm just going to do what I want to do. He didn't save you for that purpose. He saved you for service. He saved you for his glory. He saved you for his kingdom. And we all, those of us who have put their faith in Christ, play a part in that kingdom. To drift is to stop loving Christ. It's to leave your first love. If you go to the book of Revelation, we're not going to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, there's a letter to the church at Ephesus, written around 90 A.D. So what's that? 32, that's 60 years after Christ. 60 years. The lifetime, in the lifetime of people who walked the earth when Paul was around and Jesus was around, and, the, and, and God says to the church at Ephesus, you do a lot of good things. You're sound doctrinally, but you have left your first love. Whoa. Stay in love with Jesus. You say, well, how do I do that? Paul said that I may know him. I will tell you that one of the keys would be to stay in this book. This is the book that reveals him. To neglect your salvation is to not properly care for your future in Christ's kingdom. It is to give little or no care to eternal rewards. Now, you might be tempted to say, so what? And I've heard people say this. As long as I'm not in the lake of fire, so what? That is extremely short-sighted. And it's a foolish view for you to have. I'm telling you this. You're warned. You're going to want rewards in eternity. It's going to matter. I don't know how it all works out. But I'm telling you, God would not give us an entire book warning you of not staying faithful and blowing rewards. He would not talk about rewards in the Gospels and through the epistles. He would not talk about this if it wasn't important. He says, you know what? You can disregard it and you'll go to heaven. And I'm telling you, you're going to regret not having rewards. These warning passages are meant in Hebrews. Go read them. They're, they're scary. They can be scary. Not of losing your salvation, but they're saying, look, these rewards are so important, you're going to want them. Remember that justification, being born again, getting eternal life, that is a free gift. There's no strings attached. It really is free. 
simply by believing in Jesus for everlasting life. You don't earn it. You could never earn it. It's a gift. Don't lose sight of that. Don't misunderstand me. It's a gift. But eternal rewards are earned. You want to be a disciple of Christ? You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to die daily, and it will cost you. Not to be born again, but to follow him. And you neglect these rewards to, the, to your own detriment. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. Let's wrap this up. Almost. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. All believers, all believers have been crucified with Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you were baptized into Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. So all believers, because of that, will one day be resurrected from the dead. That's what that first verse is saying there, and live with Christ. He says, if you endure, if we endure, if we don't drift, if we don't neglect, we will reign with Christ. There are, there are positions of ruling and reigning with Christ in eternity. And that's speaking of these eternal rewards. You're, you earn that right in the level of that right. Remember, some servants get ten cities, some get five, some get none. You earn that right by being faithful to Christ to the end. If we deny Christ, he will deny us. That's not saying you're going to go to hell. He, he will deny you the right to rule and reign with him. Well, big deal. As long as I'm not burning, I'm telling you, I can't make it any clearer than what God's word says. You're going to want to rule and reign with Christ. I don't know what that means exactly. And if you deny him, he will deny you that right. If we're unfaithful to Christ, he still remains faithful to us. And Jesus said that everyone who believes in him has everlasting life. Jesus said that everyone who believes in him will never be judged for his sins. You will never come into condemnation again. There is nothing that can cause you to lose eternal life because Christ is faithful to you and he can't deny himself. This thing about Paul, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, chapter 4. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't know what happened to Demas. We're not told. Maybe he did repent later on. Maybe he got down to Thessalonica and he realized, I miss the Lord. I miss being in fellowship. Maybe he did. But suppose he didn't. Suppose he chased all that this world had to offer. Maybe he had... Maybe he became a really successful merchant in Thessalonica and he had a beautiful, you know, a beautiful home, a beautiful wife, a fancy chariot, healthy children. He chased all the world had to offer. I guarantee you that the Holy Spirit never gave him peace. I guarantee you that no matter how busy Demas stayed, he could never outrun the hound of heaven, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. No matter how successful he may have been in the eyes of the world, Demas knew that he had been faithful to the Savior who loved him. I don't know how Demas died, but if he had one of those experiences where he was laying in bed and he's slowly going, 
I, I guarantee you that Demas thought, man, I wish I got a bigger house in Thessalonica. I wish I got a better chariot. No, I, I guarantee you that Demas thought, I wasted my life. He traded in the best that God would have had for him for what? For what? A chariot? For what? Nothing, this will all burn. Paul, he could say, I kept the faith, I finished the race. Demas could not. And I assure you on the authority of God's word that Demas is in heaven and one day when he stands for the judgment seat of Christ, he will pay for his unfaithfulness. He will lose out on rewards. One last section, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 16. I was thinking, I, I was, this was in a daily bread, this section of scripture, and this is what started me on this message a little bit. This is weeks ago. And I was thinking about a lady in your church, I won't mention her name, who's going through some health issues. And it made me think of her. And it ties in with what we're talking about as well. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's a moment, Valerie. It's a moment. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the, at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. All that you and I see, all that this world offers, all that the king, the prince of this world offers, it's all temporary. It will all burn. I don't, you know, my house is on a very interesting street in Owaco. And I was no way I'll ever get the value out of it. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not living for my house. I'm living for Christ. I'm living for his kingdom. All this world has to offer will burn. The eternal things, the things not seen with the human eye, they last forever. Keep your focus on eternity. Keep your focus on Christ. Is your health failing this morning? Keep your focus on eternity. Keep your focus on Christ. Don't drift. Is your, are you healthy as a horse this morning? Keep your focus on Christ. Keep your focus on eternity. Don't drift. Are you poor and barely scraping by? Keep your focus on Christ. Keep your focus on eternity. Don't drift. Are you wealthy and living the American dream? Keep, for crying out loud, keep your focus on Christ. Keep your focus on eternity and don't drift. Is your marriage all it should be and your spouse this amazing person? Good. Keep your focus on Christ. 
Keep your focus on eternity and don't drift. Is your husband a jerk and your wife a nag? Keep your focus on Christ. Keep your focus on eternity. Don't drift. Jim Elliott, missionary, he's Aka Indians, martyred at 28 years of age. He said this, very famous quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Would you bow your heads this morning? I'm going to ask you just to to think and let God talk to you. Are you drifting this morning? Maybe you've been drifting for some time. Maybe you've just started to neglect the salvation you have in Christ. I beg you, don't end up like David, or Demas, excuse me. Don't end up like Solomon. Do business with God today before it's too late. Turn, this is a great hymn, but turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that in Christ we have everything we could ever want, ever need. There's nothing greater or better than him. There's nothing more wonderful than eternal life. And there's nothing more wonderful than knowing that we don't have to have it all in this world, that there awaits for us this eternity beyond what we can even imagine. I pray, God, that if there's someone here this morning that, that needs to do business with you, that they would turn over their desires to you. And they would trust you, Father. And show, you would show them the truth that we could say, for to live is Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.